Hi everyone and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. In episode two of this show, when we discussed the disappearance of Amy Lynn Bradley, I laid out the first ever Da Rule. Never trust a man named Yellow. This week, I'm instituting the second Da Rule. And Da Rule number two, don't fuck with nature. When it comes to me and nature, I'm all for, you know, like a nice little hike on a sunny day with the proper footwear and bug spray, ample sunscreen as well as water, and possibly a dog or two, and certainly a time frame that gets us off the mountain or trail well before nightfall. Admittedly, though, I was a failure of a Girl Scout, probably because I rocked up to Camp Promising Acres with a mesh mosquito headnet firmly planted on my person and was basically the human embodiment of that little elephant friend from Tarzan constantly yelling, this water looks questionable to me. And don't even get me started about the ocean and how much you should not fuck with that. Because the subreddit of thalassophobia is a thing of nightmares and existential crises rolled into one aquatic horror show. My point being, more than just regaling you with how much nature and I have a tempestuous relationship, we are at nature's mercy always. To forget that is foolish. For as much as we humans like to think we rule the natural world roost, that is simply untrue and plainly stupid to think so. We may be an intelligent life form, but for all of our advancements as the human race, there are still things about the natural world we don't know, we haven't yet discovered, or haven't even dreamed to be possible. For all we know about nature and the world at large, it is still, for the most part, shrouded in secrecy and mystery. This conceptual debate of humanity versus nature is at the heart of today's story. Did Lisanne Froon and Chris Kramer simply fall victim to human fallibility and a series of tragic missteps because they were unprepared but overconfident? Or were they unknowingly stalked, hunted like prey through an unforgiving Panamanian jungle that harbored predators who saw two foreign female tourists as the perfect targets. Some say that if you look deep into nature, you can find answers. What they forget to tell you though, is that you might get lost along the way asking your questions and without ever realizing that something is looking right back at you. Nature bites back, which is precisely why we shouldn't unnecessarily fuck with it. It really is a jungle out there. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. Sanfruns and Chris Kramer's at first glance seems like an unnerving tragedy. This well-intentioned girl's trip gone horribly, mysteriously, and fatally wrong. And then, in the words of Kylie Jenner, you start realizing things. But let me start at the beginning. 21-year-old Chris and 22-year-old Lee Sand were Dutch nationals, longtime friends, and recent college graduates in the spring of 2014. Chris had just finished up her time at University of Utrecht with a degree in cultural social education and an emphasis on art education. She planned to continue her studies in Amsterdam in the fall by going for a graduate degree in art history. This educational path didn't surprise anyone who knew her. According to her family, quote, the artistic world fascinated her and she was known to love the arts. She was a budding actress who, quote, loved performing and the spoken word. Her siblings said that they used to love the stories she would tell them from the time they were children all the way to adulthood when she would simply regale them with funny anecdotes or stories about adventures she got up to. With her pretty ginger hair and ready smile, she was known to be open, extroverted, friendly, and as graduation approached, she still wanted to do some good in the world. 22-year-old Lisanne had graduated from Saxon University in September 2013, and her degree was in applied sciences. 
At six feet tall, it was no surprise that she was a star volleyball player and also enjoyed trying more extreme sports like skydiving and mountaineering. Her friends and family said she was intelligent, curious, and had a really sweet disposition. And her quiet, thoughtful nature is what drew her to the plan that she and Chris concocted while they worked together in a cafe in Amersfoort. While working shifts in Indian Kleinen Hop, forgive my abysmal Dutch pronunciation, the girls came up with the idea for a special trip, as they put it, to Panama. Not just a vacation, though Lisanne's parents agreed that they would consider it a bit of a graduation gift for their daughter. The girls, they wanted to learn better Spanish, enjoy the local culture, and make a positive, quote, significant impact on locals, particularly children. With their destination in mind, the girls saved up for six months and eventually moved into an apartment together about six weeks before they departed. Their own stay in Panama would be about six weeks long, and they must have talked endlessly about how they would divide their time between exploring the country, volunteering with locals, and spending time with the host family that they would stay with, as well as also simply enjoying their time before returning back to normal life in the Netherlands. The Kramers and the Froons were no doubt comforted by the fact that their daughters were both, quote, smart, responsible, and conscientious, and Boquete, the small mountain town they'd be spending the majority of their time in, was also home to many expats and had a reputation for being a rather pleasant tourist destination. So, on March 14th, 2014, the girls said their goodbyes and set off on their adventure. Neither family could have imagined it would be the last time they would see either of their girls alive. Panama as a whole is technically considered to be one of the safer countries in Latin America. There are still the typical travel advisories tourists are told to adhere to almost anywhere in the world. Be wary of pickpockets, be alert in crowds, and don't make it obvious that you're a vacationer. It should be noted, though, Panama does play a somewhat major role in the drug trafficking world. The Panama Canal was instrumental in the transportation of opium during the 20th century, and in the 60s, the illegal production and trade of marijuana hit a high point. Dictator Manuel Noreja also helped things along by striking deals with major trafficking groups when he became the, quote, de facto ruler in 1983. However, since that time in the 80s, Panama's connection to the drug trafficking world has been largely in cocaine due to its shared borders with Colombia. Panama's location as a connector between Central and South America is a massively helpful asset for those trafficking drugs. It is said that cartels like El Chapo's infamous Sinanola cartel utilize local gangs to facilitate their various trade channels, which include arms and people, not just drugs. Also, let's not forget the Panama Papers that were leaked in 2016, which showcased how extensive the money laundering situation there proved to be. For tourists, though, that's not the side you're expected to see. And typically, a tourist vacationing in Panama will be none the wiser to the intricate illegal networks that happen just beyond the gates of a luxurious retreat or even the borders of a picturesque town filled with mostly expats like Boquete which is just where Lisanne Froon and Chris Kramers intended to spend the majority of their stay in Panama. The girls arrived in Panama on March 15th, 2014, and for the first two weeks of their stay, they primarily spent time in a town called Bocas del Toro. It's been called an island escape and an ecotourism favorite, though it also has a thriving nightlife, food, and shopping scenes for those looking to indulge. While Lisanne and Chris were there, they enjoyed the beaches, saw the coastal sites, practiced their Spanish, and they even met a few traveling Dutchmen. When they arrived at Boquete on March 29th, they were ready for the next leg of their adventure and looking forward to making Little Switzerland, as the town is sometimes called, a home for the next few weeks. However, they hit a snag in their plans. When the girls announced their arrival to the Spanish school that they had made all of their arrangements with, they were told that there was nothing for them to do, at least for that week. The girls were admittedly surprised because just a few days prior, they had received an email from the school, quote, confirming their start on that Monday. For whatever reason now, though, the Dutch-run Spanish by the River School simply wasn't prepared with anything in terms of assignments or projects. And the girls recorded in their diaries and cell phone texts how disappointed they were. 
especially since one of the administrators treated them pretty rudely when they arrived. Lisanne at the time textured parents, quote, we've been sent away. I am really very disappointed. They tried reaching out to another local school, the Casa de Esperanza, which had the same kind of volunteer social work opportunities, but they were out of luck. Initially, so prepared to jump right into their volunteering, the girls were staring down the barrel of a week with nothing to do. Their host mother, Miriam Guerra, advised them to take advantage of all the boquete had to offer. The little town, just 30 minutes from the Pan American Highway, had a lot they could explore. The town was known for their coffee, and plantations regularly offered tours. There was a lively arts and music scene, which would have been right up Chris's alley. And, of course, there was the scenic location filled with all sorts of nature to adventure through. Boquete, like I said, has been nicknamed Little Switzerland by some, thanks to this pleasant little coastal town image that it has. But beyond the town borders, the area is still largely wild. The Calendera River runs through it, powerful enough that it carved out most of the borders with its strength. The active volcano Baru is one of its famous landmarks, and it's the country's tallest point of land. You can traverse the trails leading up to the volcano through thick forests decorated with deceptively steep ravines and rickety monkey bridges crafted by the local indigenous people in order to reach the top through a specific trail called La Pianista, the pianist in English. La Pianista is named as such because the 6,000 foot climb is carved out through a series of steps that is said to look like the keys of a piano. It was this trail, this little adventure they decided to schedule for themselves on Tuesday, April 1st. Once they got over their initial disappointment, the girls decided to, as Chris put it in her journal, go with the Panamanian flow. They explored Boquete on their first Sunday, making sure to be back in time before sunset. They scheduled a tour of coffee plantation for later in the week, planned to visit a strawberry farm, and they made a list of the other sites that they wanted to see. Tuesday, April 1st though, that would be for the Pianista Trail. Lisanne and Chris had a full morning before they headed over to the beginning of the Pianista. They shared on their Facebook pages that they intended to walk around the town a little bit and grab something to eat. At their brunch, they actually allegedly chatted with two other travelers who may or may not have been Dutch themselves. Before they set off for the trail, Chris texted her boyfriend, Stefan, telling him of their plans to go on this hike. A local taxi driver apparently drove the girls over to the trailhead, and at around 11 a.m., they started their climb to the top of Pianista. Their destination? The Continental Divide, also known as the Mirador. The hike itself was one that the girls had apparently studied, or at the very least, looked over before that day on April 1st. Despite the steep incline and the surroundings, it's a simple enough hike. It's straight up to the top and then straight back down the exact same path that you ascend by. No twisting turns or deviations throughout the rainforest to speak of, and it should have only taken the girls a few hours, maybe three or four at the most, to hike the three miles up. The girls knew the limitations of the trail, as well as their own, since it was reported that Lisanne allegedly was asthmatic, and their host mother even noticed that she had a bit of a sore throat at the time. So, by all assumptions, it was clear that they didn't intend to deviate from the well-known trail and go past the mirror door. They were only wearing shorts and tank tops, didn't have any true hiking gear with them, and the other supplies that they brought fit into Lisanne's little blue backpack. A bottle of water, her passport... $83, Lisanne's Samsung phone, Chris's iPhone, either two bras or two bikini tops, and Lisanne's little point-and-shoot Canon camera. The thing that's most frustrating about this story is the inconsistencies it seems to be almost entirely made of. Just for one example, the taxi driver who drove them to the trailhead would later claim that he dropped the girls off closer to two in the afternoon but this can't be possible because the various selfies and pictures that the girls took at the start of the hike placed them at the beginning of the trail at 11 a.m. There are some accounts that claim other hikers saw the girls and in fact warned them to be careful on their climb, knowing how dangerous it could be for two girls by themselves. Still, most other stories never mention a single person on the trail seeing Lisanne, Chris, or either of them. For another thing, the two bras, two bikini tops, that's another detail that's not been confirmed one way or the other. Why would the girls have packed two bras for hiking? Or were they wearing them and then took them off? 
instead of bras were they actually bathing suit tops as the picture that I've seen seems to suggest. But then if so, why would the girls have brought them along? Were they planning on going swimming somewhere along the way? There's also long been claims that a local dog, Azul, aka Blue in English, followed the girls up the trail for at least part of the way. The almost mythical feel this case takes on says that if you believe Azul went with them, he arrived back in town later without the girls, and that's what first raised suspicion that something had happened to them. The matter of the inconsistencies stem from a variety of things. The language barriers between the Panamanians and the Dutch, the fact the girls themselves never precisely told anyone what their exact plans were, and simple human error. In any regard, by the end of the day on April 1st, the girls hadn't been seen since 11 a.m. We don't know precisely what it was that sounded the alarm to their disappearance. Some say it was Azul appearing back in town without them, which worried the host family and Azul's owners. Others say Miriam, the host mother, grew naturally concerned herself because she knew the girls were responsible and they'd always made it a point to return home before dark on the other nights, so she and her family conducted a small search throughout the town for them. And another story claims it wasn't until the next day that anyone noticed the two Hollandesas, as they were called by the townspeople, had simply never returned home. At the very least, we can confirm for fact that people were aware Lisa Ann and Chris hadn't returned from their hike by the next day, April 2nd, because they missed an appointment with a local guide named Feliciano Gonzalez. He allegedly took it upon himself to see if anyone knew what had happened to them and paid a visit to the girl's host family. Upon learning that the breakfast Miriam had left them was untouched and then discovering that their beds hadn't been slept in when he looked into their bedroom, Feliciano is said to have approached the teachers at the Spanish by the River School. Like, I am all for people taking disappearances seriously from the start, but there's like at least one thing I don't like about this Feliciano's one-man search. Why in the world was he given access to their bedrooms? Again, inconsistencies and a lack of details abound, but it's been reported that he himself was the one to go into their room and poke around to see if there was anything noteworthy or amiss. And I don't love that for the sake of securing evidence and the sanctity of a crime-adjacent scene. Thousands of miles away, the Froons and the Kramers were also becoming worried. The girls had made it a habitual point to stay in contact with their parents and to let them know they were okay at least once a day, and neither family had received word from the girls since the previous day. They sent a number of texts to their respective daughters, asking them to check in to see if anything had happened or just anything, all to no avail. In Boquete, the administrators of the school are said to have been the first ones to report the girls missing to police. And as police are wont to do in these cases, they chose not to get involved at first. They claimed it was too early yet that the girls were probably just off partying and that it was all nothing to truly worry about. They offered to do an aerial search of the Pianista Mirador, but that would have to wait until the next day. So, while the cursory aerial search was conducted, the initial search efforts were conducted by the Boquete locals, who found nothing. On April 6th, the Froons and the Kramers arrived in Panama, accompanied by investigators from the Netherlands. And it was only then that the Panamanian government decided to get off their ass and get involved, because by now, it was clear the girls weren't just off partying. It's been a point of contention for some time, this behavior of the Sinaproc, Sistema Nacional de Processionale Civile. I think I said that all right. I'm more partial to Italian, so please forgive me if I butchered that. Think of it like, in any regard, a Panamanian FEMA, almost National Guard type of organization. Sinoproc's efforts, especially in regards to this case, are often criticized. When they finally got involved with the search efforts on April 6th, the girls had been missing for almost a week. And when they arrived in Boquete, they immediately told the townspeople and the many local guides who had been conducting the searches to stand the fuck down. Which, what, like, why? Why wouldn't they want the help of the people who knew the area best, and especially the local tour guides who were verifiable experts on the area? They'd already searched up to the summit of Baru, the local active volcano, and their assistance would have been a boon to any organized search. But the government refused. They even later admitted that, despite guidance and insight from the local townspeople that they could have provided, quote, nobody knew where to look for the missing women, 
Speaking to the Daily Beast, Cineproc Security Director Alicia Espinazo said, quote, there are dozens of trails in the Sierra. At first, we had absolutely no idea what route the girls might have taken. Again, I ask, then why the fuck not collaborate with the local tour guides and experts? Was it a matter of smoothing out the PR nightmare since they refused to join the searches until almost a week later and now wanted to strong arm it themselves? Or was it a matter of pride, given that the Dutch investigators that came over with the Kramers and Froons and Tina Prague didn't like how that looked and they were concerned that it might play out in the local and international media? Whatever it was, it reeks of egoism and trying to save face. And the locals thought as much as well. John Tornblum, a local tour guide with more than 10 years of experience in the surrounding cloud forest, only stated this to the Daily Beast, quote, that rescue operation was a total clusterfuck. Starting on April 6th, a 10-day search commenced. Police officers, trained search dogs, more aerial searches with helicopters, and an expansive ground search all took place. The fact that it was as large a ground search as it was, though, gave some pause. Why was it so wide? The Pianista Trail was, as I said earlier, a one-way route. The way you went up was the way you came down. It was truly a one-way kind of deal. Once they reached the top, that should have been it. Lucanne and Chris should have turned around. No one would have gone past the summit of the trail. The area was widely known as not being part of the official trail because of how untended, dangerous, and simply wild it was. Hikers were well warned about the limits of the trail and the very fact that they were surrounded on jungle by both sides of the trail should have been reminder enough not to stray. If the girls had left the path then, why? And even if they had done that purposely or by mistake, they were so close to town. How could they have lost their way? It was a question that lingered as the search carried on. And after 10 days of futility, frustration, and mounting fear, Sina Prop gave up. They scaled back their search efforts, claiming that they had found no leads and no evidence of what had happened to the girls. Even the Dutch teams had to admit defeat at the end of May, when the rainy season began and their own searches came up with nothing. Eight weeks and no sign of the girls. For all the world, it seemed Lisanne and Chris had vanished from the face of it. It was as if the girls had been swallowed whole by the jungle. It wouldn't be until June 11th, nearly 10 weeks after Lisanne and Chris had last been seen, did the first tangible clue about what had happened to them was discovered. And it was in the hands of a member of a local indigenous tribe. On June 11th, a woman from the Nagobi tribe walked out of the depths of the jungle and into the Boquete police station. And with her, she had the little blue backpack that Lisanne had been wearing when the girls started their hike back on April 1st. The woman, who lived five miles away in the village of Alta Romero, which is so secluded it's damn near impossible to find on a map, claimed that she had discovered the backpack in her rice paddy when she went to tend to it that morning, and she'd found it wedged up against the bank of the Culebra River, held in place by natural debris. There wasn't much else she could or would say about the backpack, except that she was positive it hadn't been there the day before. Now, five miles of distance doesn't sound extraordinary, but five miles in the jungle is a fucking distance. And for the backpack to have been found on a riverbank, you'd never know it on site because it was almost entirely unscathed. No water damage, despite local investigators claiming it must have floated down the river to wind up where it did. There were no signs an animal had tried to investigate it themselves, and certainly no indication it had been lost in a Panamanian jungle for over two months. While the outside of the backpack posed its own series of questions to investigators, it was what was inside the backpack that asked the most incredulous one of all, what the hell had happened to these girls? When it comes to the backpack, it was less about the answers investigators found within it, because the little backpack only raised more questions about what had happened to Lisanne and Chris. Let's run through the contents of the backpack again. Inside, there were two pairs of sunglasses, $83 in US dollars, Lisanne's passport, Lisanne's camera, a water bottle, two bras, or as we know by other accounts, two bikini tops, Chris's iPhone, and Lisanne's Samsung Galaxy. Nothing had been tampered with. Everything was entirely dry and hadn't sustained any damage despite being found miles away. 
Hell, it wasn't even dirty, despite having been in a humid, muggy, legitimate rainforest for two and a half months. This wasn't some sort of high-tech, I'm a super outdoorsy person type of backpack. This was as run-of-the-mill as it gets. How had it managed to so entirely stay intact for so long? And it needed to be asked as well, where really had the backpack been all this time? As investigators began examining the backpack and its contents for clues, search efforts were revived at the news of the discovery. And these renewed searches were led by the same local tour guide, Feliciano Gonzalez, who had been the same one to raise the initial alarm about the girl's disappearance. A word about Feliciano. There are a lot of theories out there about Feliciano and his possible involvement with Lisanne and Chris. There are some who say that he had a history of acting inappropriately towards tourists, specifically female ones. The tour that Lisanne and Chris were supposed to go on with him on April 2nd, allegedly he told them that they could stay at his jungle ranch afterwards, which is apparently a massive breach in guide protocol and also understandably made the girls uncomfortable. Quote, some of our female clients have complained of him harassing them, says fellow guide John Tornblom, and other guides in Boquete back this up, saying the man in question has a habit of bathing in the hot springs with lady tourists, which is, again, against code. It's been reported by some that Lee San even wrote in her diary that he had groped Chris, which is what inspired them to ditch their plans to have him tour them on the second, and why they went up the pianista themselves in the first place. It also needs to be noted that, when the renewed search efforts kicked off after the discovery of the backpack on or around June 12th, the jean shorts that Chris had been wearing were found by Feliciano. Again, we have some contradictions here. Some say the shorts were found neatly folded, zipped up even, and placed just above the waterline mark of the river. Others say the shorts were found floating in the river. What is interesting to note is that the shorts were found closer to the top of the mirror door, as opposed to where the backpack was found near Alta Romero. What were the shorts doing so far from the backpack? Why was there such a distance between them? And honestly, what the fuck does any of it mean? The same question would be asked again just a few days later, on June 16th, when, once again, Feliciano made another discovery during the expanded search efforts. Except this time, it was utterly grisly. Hidden under some brush and trees along the Culebra, and much closer to the spot where the backpack was discovered, a hiking boot was found. And inside the boot was Lee San's foot, reportedly, quote, still intact. Encased in a sock, 28 metatarsals of the left foot were also found, and close to where Feliciano found Lee San's foot, a large piece of pelvic bone that would come to be identified as Chris's was also found. Some didn't like the suggestion that such a coincidence made. John Tornblum, again, when speaking to the Daily Beast, said, quote, he's the last guy to see them alive, and then he's the one who finds their bones. Something about that just feels wrong to me. Over the next weeks, though, through the end of August, more bones would be found. Only fragments, though. A slow trickling in of pieces and subsequent clues that felt more like a slow burn of fear than it did of anything that could prove what had happened to the girls. In the end, 33 skeletal fragments would be found in total, scattered throughout the length of the Culebra. Of those bones, the foot, the pelvic bone, and one rib that was later found hours away and later conclusively identified as Chris's belonged to the girls. Within the 33 total remains found, investigators discovered that not all of the bones belonged to Chris and Lisan. The DNA of five other people were attributed to those bones. Of the girls' remains, there were oddities, though. It was noted that much like the backpack, the bones didn't have any damage. There were no scratches or dents or any other indicators that they had been tampered with, either by the natural currents of the rock-filled Culebra or by any animals living in the jungle. Quote, a Panamanian forensic anthropologist later claimed that under magnification, quote, there are no discernible scratches of any kind on the bones, neither of natural nor cultural origin. There are no marks on the bones at all. Another forensic investigator claimed that Chris's bones looked to have been altered by some sort of chemical, 
supposedly lime, because of how bleached they appeared. And most disturbingly, and in direct contrast to that suggestion, investigators found it odd that while Chris's bones seemed to have been bleached by a chemical or by nature, and this is kind of gross, Lisanne's remains were fresh and that there is still skin attached to the bones and they were in quote, good condition. By the end of August, only one thing was clear. Lisanne and Chris must have been dead. The question now though, was how? While search efforts turned up bones, the backpack and its contents only turned up weirdness. Specifically, Lisanne's camera and the girl's two phones turned up weirdness. The police imagined that the phones might be able to provide them with some answers about what had happened to Chris and Lisanne up on the summit, but as seems to be the case with this particular case, they were wrong. The phone records proved only to add to the hashtag fucking questions that were already piling up. And once the investigators got the records, they realized something startling, something darkly worrisome. The first 911 call the girls had made came the same day that they were last seen only a few hours into their hike. At 4.39 p.m. on April 1st, Lisanne placed a call to 112, the Dutch equivalent to the American 911 number. At 4.51 p.m., Chris tries her luck and attempts to call 112 from her iPhone. Neither phone connected due to the fact, you know, jungles don't really have service. These were the only two calls that they tried to make on that first day. The girls, at this point, should have already been making their way back to Boquete. It was clear they knew something was wrong if they were calling for help already. So what had happened? What had gone wrong? For the next three days, the girls created a pattern. They would keep their phones off and then regularly try to make contact with emergency services. On April 2nd, over 14 hours after their first call for help, they turned their phones back on. At 6.58 a.m., a call to 112 was placed from Chris's iPhone, and at 8.14 a.m., a call to 112 was made from Lee Sands' Samsung phone. Samsung phone. After this attempt, which only lasted 36 seconds, Lee Sand powered her phone off entirely. Investigators actually later discover her phone hadn't been fully charged when they left Boquete, so she was most likely concerned about doing everything she could to save the battery for as long as possible. The call that Chris made that morning, the 6.58 a.m. call, though, it actually did connect to 112, but it was either accidentally or manually disconnected after only one or two seconds. Later that morning at 10.53 a.m., Lisanne made two more calls, one to 112 and another to good old 911. At this time, she either purposely or accidentally took a screenshot that was later found in her photos. And she followed the same pattern again at 1.56 p.m., with one call to 112 and another to 911. After this 1.56 p.m. call, that was it for the day. The phones were powered down and no more attempts were made. On April 3rd, 19 hours after the last round of calls were made, only one attempt was made, this time on Chris's iPhone at 9.33 a.m. to 911. The phone stayed on for one minute and a little few seconds after, and then they turned off their phone. The rest of the day, the girls only turned their phones on to check for signals. For Lisanne, she checked in at 1.50 p.m. and again at 4.19 p.m. Her phone was clearly in the danger zone because she didn't even try to make any calls on April 3rd. Chris, likewise, didn't make any calls either. She only turned her iPhone back on to check for a signal at 4 p.m. exactly. That 911 call attempt at 9.33 a.m. would be the last one made. Over the next several days, and like, yes, Day, oh God, days on end in the fucking jungle. Like literally my hands are just sweating thinking about that. The girls only somewhat regularly turned their phones on to check for signals. On April 4th, Chris turned her phone on at 10, 16 a.m. and at 1.42 p.m. No signal. Lisanne didn't even bother to try to turn hers on that day. In fact, she wouldn't turn her phone on again for two whole days. On the April 5th at 4.50 a.m., Lisanne's Samsung is switched on and almost immediately turns off. Ten minutes later, at 5 a.m. on the dot, it turned on for what would be the last time. The Samsung was never used again after 5 a.m. on April 5th. Later that day at 10.50 a.m. and at 1.37 p.m., the iPhone turned on, checked for a signal, 
and then turned off. What's weird about this 137 attempt is that the wrong passcode was entered. In fact, the proper passcode would never be entered into Chris's iPhone after that. Stranger still, from April 7th to April 10th, someone made 77 attempts at an emergency call on the iPhone, which a lot of us, I think, know this. It's possible to do that because you don't necessarily need the passcode into an iPhone to make an emergency call. They were allegedly just a few attempts to get into the iPhone itself, but with the wrong passcode, they were all unsuccessful. On April 11th at 10.51 a.m., the iPhone was switched on to seemingly check for a signal. Instead of following the usual pattern of switching it off immediately, though, the phone stayed on for over an hour. At 10.56 a.m., the iPhone, the last remaining phone, was turned off for the last time. There are several weird things about the cell phone behavior, and I'm here to lay them out if you didn't pick up on them. For one, notice the pattern with which the girls placed their calls. Almost every attempt at making a rescue call happened between roughly 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. in the mornings, and then in the afternoons between 1 p.m. and 4 p.m. These aren't even like hours you can tell by the sun or like sunrise, sunset, what have you. So what was the deal with inexplicably keeping to the same schedule? Why these time frames? Why did they stop making attempts after the third day too? Lisanne's phone lasted until April 5th and the iPhone lasted until the 11th. It might have felt futile and demoralizing, but to only check the signal, I guess, seems even more depressing. Even if they didn't have signals, why didn't they try to send texts or an SMS? Or especially with the iPhone and its capabilities, why didn't they record a video? Some sort of video explaining what had happened and terrifying as this sounds, at least leave something, this last message for loved ones if they ever recovered their remains. And then of course, who made the 77 attempts via emergency call on Chris's iPhone? And why didn't they have the correct passcode to the phone? If you think the calls are weird, just wait, because we're about to start discussing what investigators found on Lisanne's camera. On April 1st at 1.54 p.m., as evidenced by the timestamp, the last, what we'll call normal, picture is taken on the camera. Prior to that, the images on the camera had been of the scenery around them, the sights the girls saw on their way up to the summit, and of course, selfies. Now, I say last normal picture because though the April 1st, 1.54 p.m. picture is the last normal one, there were pictures taken after that. Seven days later, on April 8th, 90 of them, from between the hours of 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. And we have damn near no idea what they mean. The last normal photo, photo 508, does give us some clues, though. The picture is of Chris, and she's seemingly leading the way for the two of them as they cross a stream. Chris is looking back at Lisanne, and she doesn't look happy. It's no smiling shot or even a funny candid. Investigators later determined from this picture that the girls were no longer on the official trail, and they were instead on the local trails used mainly by the area's indigenous tribes. Photo 505 proves that they crossed the Continental Divide, and they were about 20 minutes downhill from the summit. The landmarks in the photos 507 and 508 determine the girls at the time of the last normal picture were at least an hour away from the top of the Mirador and still seemingly heading down the path. With the discovery of this picture, at least one thing was clear. The girls had, in fact, left the pianista's official trail. But why? Why did they ever leave the trail? If investigators hoped that the next few photos would make that answer clear, they were sorely mistaken. Because the next time that the camera was used was a week later, on April 8th, and the pictures were flash photos in total darkness with no rhyme or reason to what was being captured. The Daily Beast did a long-form piece about Lisanne and Chris, and their description of, I mean, the whole reporting was masterful, but really their description of the photos was top-notch, so let me read part of it to you. Quote, A dozen of more long-range, quasi-dark images show a rock outcropping, tree formations, and even individually identifiable plants. Then the shooter's position changes, and we see one or more close-up, well-lit images, 
Afterward, the camera moves slightly and the pattern is repeated with the exact same unique landscape features shot again from a different angle, followed by more close-up shots. Wilderness expert Carl Wheel also found, finds the oft-repeated imagery significant. Quote, she might be trying to use the camera to tell us something that she thinks is important, he says. Something that went down that night and she wanted to record it for her loved ones or whoever else. The photos also tell us that the women had been behaving rationally and intelligently, using whatever they had available to signal rescuers. For example, one picture shows a crude but effective direction marker made of sticks and orange plastic laid out on a large flat-topped boulder. The women had also used a roll of toilet paper tissue to spell out something, possibly an arrow or an SOS on a boulder, even placing a rusty mirror in the center of the letters to reflect sunlight and perhaps flag-passing helicopters. So, what was it? Were they trying to mark their location and be able to find wherever they had been that 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. nighttime frame? Were they trying to scare off an animal with the flash? That very night, the scene of Prague had finally started searching and included a nighttime search for the girls. Had one or both of them heard the rescue searchers and tried to use the camera flash to catch someone's attention? There are two other baffling but crucially important factors discovered within the camera as well. One photo shows the back of one of the girl's heads. It's been suggested that it's Chris's head due to the gingery hue of her hair. And on the side of her head are smears of blood along the right side of her temple. Was this photo taken by Chris to try and get a look at how bad her injury might be? How did she come to be injured? Was the photo taken by Lisanne? a documentation that Chris had been injured and possibly overpowered by someone? Or was it taken by somebody else entirely? I often talk about in these episodes how important the things that we do have in front of us are, but how equally important the things that we have to ask and question are as well. In this case, it's a matter of the picture that isn't included that begs a lot of hashtag fucking questions. When investigators were going through the camera's contents, they noticed something odd. Photo 509 was gone. The way Lee Sands' camera worked, if the girls had, for whatever reason, manually deleted the original 509 themselves, the rest of the photos would have been reorganized and renumbered to account for the deletion. But that's not what happened. The photos jumped from 508 straight to 510, which suggests the girls didn't delete the photo especially since there was no record of the photo in the camera's log or data processor. In fact, there was no trace of 509 existing outside of the fact that the file name was there. Some argue it might have been some sort of glitch, a technical malfunction that only affected file 509 and only deleted that one image. Personally, I'm not sure I buy an explanation that easy or that convenient. Six years later, though, and the fact is this, Photo 509 was completely erased and has never been recovered. What was in Photo 509? A photo that stood between the last normal picture on April 1st and the 90 flash images taken between 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. a week later. Pictures speak a thousand words, but what are these and the missing photo? What are they trying to tell us? Panamanian investigators were quick to try and wrap up the case surrounding the Hollandaises. By March of the next year, March 2015, investigators said that while they couldn't determine the exact cause of death, it seemed most likely the girls had simply fallen off a cliff and they just died by accident. I refer to this section in my notes as government fuck-ups, in case you're wondering where this is going. Let's take a moment to list just some of these fuck-ups. First, of course, the fact that the Panamanian officials refused to get involved until several days after the girls went missing. One official was even quoted as simply saying, the girls are not in this jungle. Except yes, they were, and the Nagobi woman proved as much with the discovery of the backpack, you incompetent idiots. Speaking of the Nagobi and the locals in general, by refusing their help, the official investigators lost so much valuable insight and expertise to the area. So why did they force them to stand down from their search efforts? Was it a matter of pride and making sure the optics were good, like I said earlier? Also, there was no chain of custody when it came to the pieces of evidence that were recovered, 
And proper forensic protocol was simply not a fucking thing. For instance, the Dagobi woman's fingerprints weren't recorded, despite knowing that she had handled the backpack. None of the Nagobi people were fingerprinted, in fact. Chris's iPhone was said to have the screen marked up with prints that appeared to have tried to swipe up on it, but they were never tested or recorded. Rumors abounded that Feliciano, again, making an appearance, washed the shorts himself that were found by the river before returning them to the police. Simple leads, like actually following up with Feliciano, figuring out who the two possibly Dutch men the girls allegedly had brunch with, making more of a move to determine, I don't know, who the other bones belonged to that were found with the girls' remains, or simply confirming whether or not the dog went up the trail with them, none of this happened. And of course, the biggest fuck-up of all, the story itself makes no sense when you start to pull at the loosely raveled strings that hold it together. John Tornbloom, the same tour guide I mentioned earlier, had these simple questions to ask. Quote, if it really was an accident, why couldn't they find more remains? Where are all the big bones? Where are the skulls? There were no animals up there that would eat a skull. The remains that were found of the girls don't suggest anything about a fall beyond Lisanne's decapitated foot. The only pieces of Chris that have been found were the portion of her pelvis and only one of her ribs. Hers are also the bones that appear to be bleached or contaminated with lime, which may be an indication that somebody tried to speed up decomposition as confirmed by a private report conducted by the EIMLCF. But beyond that, there's no other damage. Not from the river, not from any scavenging animals, nothing. And then Lisanne's remains, they might be even stranger still considering what different stages of decomposition each set of remains were found in. While Chris was reduced to bone because of how advanced her decomposition was, Lisanne's remains were still in the beginning stages of decomposition, so much so that there was still, quote, fresh flesh attached to parts of her. The coroner even suggested that Lisanne's remains had been in a, quote, cool place because of the state that they were in. And how is it that the bones were so scattered, yet we still haven't found more of them, like John Trombloom said? According to one Panamanian forensic expert, quote, we have less than 10% of one individual and less than 5% of the other. This kind of extreme fragmentation is very strange. The story of two young women going missing and turning up only in small fragments, mysterious bits and pieces, it doesn't bode well, especially not for a country that relies so heavily on tourism. Tourism, it should be noted, accounts for about 14.5% of the GDP in Panama's economy. And the idea of accidents and mysterious deaths doesn't exactly jive with the image of paradise the country tries to present to travelers. Strange, then, though, how in 2009, five years before Lisanne and Chris even arrived in the country, another hiker from Europe went missing, close to the same trail the girls had taken. 29-year-old Brit, Alex Humphreys, was last seen on August 14th in 2009. He's never been heard from or seen since. After a week of him being missing, Cena and Prox scaled back their search, and shortly after that, when the family returned to Manchester, they were told any officers from England were barred from entering Panama by orders from the government. Just gonna let that sink in for a hot sec. According to Denver, Alex's father, quote, I think permission was refused on the basis that no crime had been committed, that it was just a missing persons report. The Panamanians didn't want to admit a crime could have been committed in case it killed tourism. Similarly, Betzaida Petty, the attorney general of Panama at the time that Lisanne and Chris went missing, refused to admit a crime had taken place when it came to the girls. Instead, like I said earlier, the case was closed by March 2015, but not before the Froons and Kramers allegedly had to sign an NDA in order to get custody of what remained of their daughters. Because yeah, forcing the parents of two dead girls who went missing and died under mysterious circumstances in a foreign country to sign an NDA to get their daughter's remains back, yeah, that doesn't scream suspicious or criminal at all.
There are two schools of thought when it comes to what might have happened to the Hollandesas, the lost girls of Panama. One, it was an accident. Two, it was not an accident. By all means, an accident happening in a jungle when you're unprepared and under-equipped, unfamiliar with your surroundings, I can absolutely buy that as a failed Girl Scout myself. You're in the jungle, for fuck's sake. Anything can happen in the jungle. But it's everything else surrounding this case that gives me pause and makes me question. What if it wasn't an accident? There are just some things we can't ignore that suggest what happened to Lee San and Chris was not an accident. And I think it's time we start talking about them by asking some hashtag fucking questions. What happened with Spanish by the River and the schedule that the girls had been given by the school? Why was there suddenly nothing for them to do for a week? Did the girls actually have brunch with two Dutchmen on the morning of April 1st? If so, who were they? Why haven't they ever come forward? If the girls had studied the trail like it's been claimed that they did, why did they pack so lightly? Why did they dress so inappropriately for a hike? The girls, Lisanne especially, were athletic. Shouldn't they have known to wear longer pants, have longer sleeves, and just better prepare themselves? Or is this an indicator that they never intended to go past the mirror door? Did the girls encounter anyone, anyone at all, on the way up the Pianista? Did they ever even try to come down? And if they did, why were they stopped? I, for the love of God, I just need to know this. Did Azul the dog actually go up the trail with them? Did the girls know they crossed the Continental Divide and thus left the safety of the Pianista? Did they intend to cross the divide or was it an accident? Why was the local guide Feliciano allowed to just search through their rooms? I just, I hate it. I hate that you've contaminated a crime adjacent scene. Ugh. Since the police refused to help, I have to ask how thoroughly was the Pianista area searched by the locals in the first few days after the girls disappeared? Because that's a hell of a lot of responsibility on people who don't have the official capacity to do something like that. How is the backpack in such good condition if it had been left in the jungle for weeks on end? Was the backpack planted? If so, by who? Why was there such a lack of DNA testing and fingerprint recording? How did the bone fragments just happen to wind up near or in the same spot on the riverbank of a river known to be wildly unpredictable? What were the shorts doing so far from the backpack? Hell, what was the rib doing so far from everything else? Why was there such a distance between all of these pieces? What are the odds that one of the last people, possibly the last person, to see Lisanne and Chris alive was Feliciano, the same man who found Chris's pelvis bone and Lisanne's foot? Truly, somebody give me those ads. Do that math. How is it possible that there was no damage to Chris's bones when they were discovered? If the bones were bleached, why? Why haven't more of their bones been found? How and why were the girls' remains in such wildly different stages of decomposition? Why did the girls make their first 911 call so soon on the first day? What happened? Why did they stop making attempts after the third day in the jungle? Why were there so many days between the regular usage of the phone and the final time it was used. What happened in that time frame? Is the reason the iPhone was never given the correct passcode after April 5th because Chris was either too incapacitated to communicate it to Lisanne or because Chris was dead and hadn't told Lisanne what it was before she died? Why didn't the girls try sending any texts or SMS messages? Even if they didn't have service, they could have recorded what was happening. So why didn't they? Speaking of recording, why didn't they record a video on at least the iPhone? When it comes to the nighttime photos, why did someone take a photo? Why did they start taking the photos at that time, 1 a.m. and 4 a.m.? What was the cause? What was the reason? Were they trying to mark their location? Trying to scare off an animal with a flash? Were they trying to get the attention of rescue searchers? Was Chris really injured, as one of the pictures seems to suggest in the 90 flash frames burst? Why was a picture taken of the supposed injury? And if she was injured, what happened to her? 
what were they trying to tell us with the photos? What was on photo 509 and why was it deleted? In reference to that, who had custody of the camera first? The Panamanians or the Dutch team? Did someone on either team delete 509? And if so, why? Was the photo deleted on purpose? Who benefits from having photo 509 deleted? Who are the five other people whose remains were found in the bone fragments? Officials have come out to say that they don't think there's a connection between Lee San and Chris's deaths and the disappearance of Alex Humphrey, but still, is there a connection? And if so, what is it? Is it true that the families had to sign an NDA to have their daughter's remains released to them? And if so, fucking why? Did the girls stumble upon something that they weren't supposed to while they were accidentally lost in the jungle? Like a cartel growing field, a trafficking situation, something of the kind. And were they killed because of what they saw? In January of this year, a mass grave was found in a neighboring region containing the body of a pregnant woman and six children who had all been killed by an indigenous tribe and nine indigenous people were arrested for the murders. Did Lisanne and Chris die by the hands of locals that they accidentally crossed paths with and upset because of their presence? Why won't the Panamanian officials continue to investigate what really happened? Is the government more concerned about protecting the tourism industry than uncovering what really happened to the Hollandeses? Finally, what truly killed Lisanne Froon and Chris Kramers? Quote, once you get lost up there, you change. You're not the same person you are down below. It's like a nightmare to be lost in the Selva, according to one local tour guide. Any answers that we might have learned died with Lee San and Chris in that Panamanian jungle. Instead, we're left only to wonder what really happened to two girls who took off on a Tuesday morning for what was supposed to be a three hour hike. Were they simply lost? trying to pick their way through the rainforest, having realized far too late that they had left the path? Did they fight to survive, to try and see if they could contact any local tribes to help them out of the situation that they had found themselves in? Or was it something more sinister? Were they hunted through the brush, forced deeper and deeper into the jungle because of something that they'd done or seen by mistake? What happened to these girls? It was just supposed to be an afternoon hike. According to the Boquete locals, the Nagobi have a tale now. In the first few weeks of April, right as the rainy season is set to begin, a new noise joins in every year with the cacophony of the usual wildlife sounds. It's the sound of two women crying, wailing, haunted and piercing throughout the dense jungle. The Nagobi swear to the Hollandeses, still making their presence known, still following the same route that they wandered still lost in the jungle, even in death. When it comes right down to it, that's the only question that matters in this contradictory, confusing, completely baffling case. How did Lee Sanfroon and Chris Kramers die? And why do we still have to ask? The answers lie in the jungle. I just have to wonder how long we wait until it shares its secrets with us. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I want to give a shout out at the top of this to the newest member of the DAW Patreon crew, Nina Peace. Your support truly means the world, so thank you for helping to keep the figurative DAW lights on. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, I'd love it if you left a rating and a review for the podcast over on Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at, at Dark as Hell Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at Dark as Hell Pod. Again, that's all one word too. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkasthellpodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in joining the Dot Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash darkasthellpodcast to see what level might tickle your spooky fancy. Last month had a hell of a lineup of extra exclusive content, and I'm even more excited for what all I have in store for this month. Truly, you don't want to miss any of this. So come be a part of the Da Patreon crew. Patreon.com slash dark as hell podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you back here next week. Ready to get dark as hell 
all over again.